Chapter forty five of the Wanderer or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter forty five. With whatever shame, whatever chagrin, Juliet saw herself again involved in a pecuniary obligation with a stranger and a gentleman, a support so efficacious at a moment of such alarm, was sensibly and gratefully felt. Yet she was not less anxious to cancel a favour which still was unfitting to be received. She watched, therefore, for the departure of Miss Bidle, and the restoration of stillness to the staircase, to descend, once more, in prosecution to her scheme with Miss Matson. The anxious fear of rejection, and dread of rudeness, with which she then renewed her solicitation, soon happily subsided, from a readiness to listen, and a civility of manner, as welcome as they were unexpected, in her hostess, by whom she was engaged, without difficulty, to enter upon her new business the following morning. Thus, and with cruel regret, concluded her fruitless effort to attain a self-dependence which, however subject to toil, might be free, at least, from control. Every species of business, however narrow its cast, however limited its wants, however mean its materials, required, she now found, some capital to answer to its immediate calls, and some steady credit for encountering the unforeseen accidents and unavoidable risks to which all human undertakings, whether great or insignificant, are liable. With this conviction upon her mind, she strove to bear the disappointment without murmuring, hoping to gain in security all that she lost in liberty. Little reason, indeed, had she for regretting what she gave up. Had she been worn by solitary toil, and heavy rumination, by labour without interest, and loneliness without leisure. Nevertheless, the beginning of her new career promised little amelioration from the change. She was summoned early to the shop to take her work, but, when she begged leave to return with it to her chamber, she was stared at as if she had made a demand the most preposterous, and told that, if she meant to enter into business, she must be at hand to receive directions, and to learn how it should be done. To enter into business was far from the intention of Juliet, but the fear of dismission, should she proclaim how transitory were her views, silenced her into acquiescence and she seated herself behind a distant counter. And here, perforce, she was initiated into a new scene of life, that of the humours of a milliner's shop. She found herself in a whirl of hurry, bustle, loquacity, and interruptions. Customers pressed upon customers. Goods were taken down merely to be put up again, cheapened but to be rejected, admired but to be looked at, and left, and only bought when, to all appearance, they were undervalued and despised. It was here that she saw, in its unmasked futility, the selfishness of personal vanity. The good of a nation, the interest of society, 
the welfare of a family, could with difficulty have appeared of higher importance than the choice of a ribbon, or the set of a cap, and scarcely any calamity under heaven could excite looks of deeper horror or despair than any mistake committed in the arrangement of a feather or a flower. Every feature underwent a change, from chagrin and fretfulness, if any ornament, made by order, proved, upon trial, to be unbecoming, while the whole complexion glowed with the exquisite joy of triumph, if something new, devised for a superior in the world of fashion, could be privately seized as a model by an inferior. The ladies whose practice it was to frequent the shop, thought the time and trouble of its mistress and her assistants, amply paid by the honour of their presence, and though they tried on hats and caps till they put them out of shape, examined and tossed about the choicest goods till they were so injured that they could be sold only at half price, ordered sundry articles which, when finished, they returned because they had changed their minds, or discovered that they did not want them. Still their consciences were at ease, their honour was self-acquitted, and their generosity was self-applauded, if, after two or three hours of lounging, rummaging, fault-finding, and chaffering, they purchased a yard or two of ribbon, or a few skeins of netting silk. The most callous disregard to all representations of the dearness of materials, or of the just price of labour, was accompanied by the most facile acquiescence even in demands that were exorbitant, if they were adroitly preceded by, Lady, or the Duchess of, gave that sum for just such another cap, hat, and see, this very morning. Here, too, as in many other situations into which accident had led, or distress had driven Juliet, she saw, with commiseration and shame for her fellow-creatures, the total absence of feeling and of equity in the dissipated and idle for the indigent and laborious the goods which demanded most work most ingenuity and most hands were last paid because heaviest of expense though for that very reason the many employed and the charge of materials made their payment the first required oh that the good mr giles arb thought Juliet, could arraign, in his simple but impressive style, the ladies who exhibit themselves with unpaid plumes at assemblies and operas, and inquire whether they can flatter themselves that to adorn them alone is sufficient to recompense those who work for, without seeing them, who ornament without knowing them, and who must necessarily, if unrequited, starve in rendering them more brilliant. Upon further observation, nevertheless, her compassion for the milliner and the workwomen somewhat diminished, for she found that their notions of probity were as lax as those of their customers were of justice, and saw that their own rudeness to those who had neither rank nor fortune, kept pace with the haughtiness which they were forced to support, from those by whom both were possessed. Every advantage was taken of inexperience and simplicity. Every article was charged, not according to its value, but to the skill or ignorance of the purchaser. Old goods were sold as if new, cheap goods as if dear, and ancient or vulgar ornaments 
were presented to the unpractised chafferer as the very pink of the mode. The rich and grand, who were capricious, difficult, and long in their examinations, because their time was their own, or rather because it hung upon their hands, and whose utmost exertion and sole practice of exercise consisted in strolling from a sofa to a carriage, were instantly and with some fulsome adulation attended, while the meaner or economical, whose time had its essential appropriations, and was therefore precious, were obliged to wait patiently for being served, till no coach was at the door, and every fine lady had sauntered away. And even then they were scarcely heard when they spoke, scarcely shewn what they demanded, and scarcely thanked for what they purchased. In viewing conflicts such as these, between selfish vanity and cringing cunning, it soon became difficult to decide which was least congenial to the upright mind and pure morality of Juliet, the insolent, vain, unfeeling buyer, or the subtle, plausible, overreaching seller. The companions of Juliet in this business, though devoted, of course, to its manual operations, left all its cares to its mistress. Their own wishes and hopes were caught by other objects. The town was filled with officers, whose military occupations were brief, whose acquaintances were few, and who could not, all day long, ride or pursue the sports of the field. These gentlemen, for their idle moments, chose to deem all the unprotected young women whom they thought worth observance their natural prey. And though, from race to race, and from time immemorial, the young female shopkeeper had been warned of the danger, the folly, and the fate of her predecessors, in listening to the itinerant admirer, who, here to-day and gone to-morrow, marches his adorations from town to town with as much facility, and as little regret, as his regiment. Still every new votary to the counter and the modes was ready to go over the same ground that had been trodden before, with the fond persuasion of proving an exception to those who had ended in misery and disgrace, by finishing herself with marriage and promotion. Their minds, therefore, were engaged in airy projects, and their leisure, where they could elude the vigilance of Miss Matson, was devoted to clandestine coquetry, tittering whispers, and secret frolics. These, said Juliet, in a letter to Gabriella, are now my destined associates. Ah, heaven, can these, can such as these, setting aside pride, prejudice, propriety, or whatever word we use for the distinctions of society, can these, can such as these, suffice as companions to her whose grateful heart has been honoured with the friendship of Gabriella? O oh, hours of refined felicity past and gone! How severe is your contrast with those of heavenliness and distaste now endured! The inexperience of Juliet in business impeded not her acquiring almost immediate excellence in the millinery art, for which she was equally fitted by native taste, and by her remembrance of what she had seen abroad. The first time, therefore, that she was employed to arrange some ornaments, she adjusted them with an elegance so striking, 
that Miss Matson, with much parade, exhibited them to her best lady customers, as a specimen of the very last new fashion, just brought her over by one of her young ladies from Paris. In a town that subsists by the search of health for the sick, and of amusement for the idle, the smallest new circumstance is of sufficient weight to be related and canvassed, for there is ever most to say where there is least to do. The phrase, therefore, that went forth from Miss Matson, that one of her young ladies was just come from France, was soon spread through the neighbourhood, with the addition that the same person had brought over specimens of all the French costumes. Such a report could not fail to allure staring customers to the shop, where the attraction of the youth and beauty of the new workwoman, contrasted with her determined silence to all inquiry, gave birth to perpetually varying conjectures in her presence, which were followed by the most eccentric assertions where she was the subject of discourse in her absence. All that already had been spread abroad, of her acting, her teaching, her playing the harp, her needlework, and, more than all, her having excited a suicide, was now in every mouth, and curiosity, baffled in successive attempts to penetrate into the truth, supplied, as usual, every chasm of fact by invention. This species of commerce, always at hand, and always fertile, proved so highly amusing to the lassitude of the idle, and to the frivolousness of the dissipated, that, in a very few days, the shop of Miss Matson became the general rendezvous of the saunterers, male and female, of Brighthelmstone. The starers were happy to present themselves where there was something to see, the strollers where there was anywhere to go, the loungers where there was any pretense to stay, and the curious where there was anything to develop in which they had no concern. Juliet, at first, ignorant of the usual traffic of the shop, imagined this affluence of customers to be habitual, but she was soon undeceived, by finding herself the object of inquisitive examination, and by overhearing unrestrained inquiries made to Miss Matson of, "'Pray, ma'am, which is your famous French milliner?' In the midst of these various distastes and discomforts, some interest was raised in the mind of Juliet, for one of her young fellow-workwomen. It was not, indeed, that warm interest which is the precursor of friendship. Its object had no qualities that could rise to such a height. It was simply a sensation of pity, abetted by a wish of doing good. Flora Pearson, without either fine features or fine countenance, had strikingly the beauty of youth in a fair complexion, round, plump, rosy cheeks, bright though unmeaning eyes, and an air of health, strength, and juvenile good-humour, that was diffused copiously through her whole appearance. She was innocent and inoffensive, and, as far as she was able to think, well-meaning, and ready to be at everybody's command though incapable to be at anybody's service. Yet her simplicity was of that happy sort that never occasions self-distress, from being wholly unaccompanied by any consciousness of deficiency or inferiority. Accustomed to be laughed at almost whenever she spoke, 
she saw the smile that she raised without emotion, or participated in it without knowing why, and she heard the sneer that followed her simple merriment without displeasure, though sometimes she would a little wonder what it meant. This young creature, who had but barely passed her sixteenth year, had already attracted the dangerous attention of various officers, from whose several attacks and manoeuvres she had hitherto been rescued by the vigilance of Miss Matson. Each of these anecdotes she eagerly took, or rather made opportunities to communicate to Juliet, waiting for no other encouragement than the absence of Miss Matson, and using no other prelude than, "'Now I've got something else to tell you!' Except for some slight mixture of contempt, Juliet heard these tales with perfect indifference, till that ungenial feeling, or rather absence of feeling, was superseded by compassion, upon finding that she was the object, probably the dupe, of a new and unfinished adventure, with which Miss Matson was as yet unacquainted. "'Now, Miss Ellis,' she cried, "'I'll tell you the drollest part of all, shall I?' "'Well, do you know I've got another admirer that's above all the rest, "'and yet he ain't a captain neither, nor an officer. "'But he's quite a gentleman of quality, "'for he's a knight baronite, and he's very pretty, I assure you, "'as pretty as you, only his nose is a little shorter, "'and his mouth is a little bigger. "'And he has not got quite so much colour, for he is very pale. "'But he's prettier than I am, I believe. "'Yet I'm not very homely, people say. "'I'm sure I don't know. "'One can't judge oneself.' "'But I believe I am very well. "'At least I am not very brown. "'I know that by my looking-glass. "'I've a pretty good skin of my own.' "'Neither the giggling derision of her fellow workwomen, "'nor the total abstinence from inquiry or comment "'with which Juliet heard these insignificant details, "'checked the pleasure of Flora in her own prattle, "'which, whenever she could find someone to address, "'for she waited not till anyone would listen,' went on, with sleepy good-humour, and pretty but unintelligent smiles, from the moment that she rose, to the moment that she went to rest. But when, in great confidence, and declaring that nobody was in the secret, except just Miss Biddy, and Miss Jenny, and Miss Polly, and Miss Betsy, she made known who was this last and most striking admirer, the attention of Juliet was roused. It was Sir Lyle Sycamore. Copiously, and with looks of triumph, Flora related her history with the young baronet. First of all, she said, he had declared, in ever so many little whispers, that he was in love with her, and next he had made her ever so many beautiful presents, of earrings, necklaces, and trinkets, always sending them by a porter, who pretended that they were just arrived by the diligence, with a letter to show to Miss Matson importing that an uncle of Flora's, who resided in Northumberlandshire, begged her to accept these remembrances. "'Though I'm sure I don't know how he found out I've got an uncle there,' she continued, "'unless it was by my telling him when he asked what relations I had.' Her gratitude and vanity thus at once excited, Sir Lyle told her that he had some important intelligence to communicate, which could not be revealed in a short whisper in the shop. He begged her, therefore, to meet him upon the strand, a little way out of the town, one Sunday afternoon, 
while Miss Matson might suppose that she was taking her usual recreation with the rest of the young ladies. "'So I could not refuse him, you may think,' she said, "'after being so much obliged to him, and so we walked together by the seaside, and he was as agreeable as ever, and so was I too, I believe, if I may judge without flattery. At least he said I was, over and over, and he's a pretty good judge, I believe, a man of his quality.' but i shan't tell you what he said to me for he said i was as fresh as a violet and as fair as jessamine and as sweet as a pink and as rosy as a rose but one must not over and above believe the gentleman mamma says for what they say is but half a compliment however what do you think miss ellis only guess for all his being so polite do you know he was upon the point of behaving rude only i told him i'd squall out if he did but he spoke so pretty when he saw I was vexed, that I could not be very angry with him about it, could I? Besides, men will be rude, naturally, Mamma says. But does not your Mamma tell you also, Miss Pearson, that you must not walk out alone with gentlemen? Oh, dear, yes, she has told me that ever so often, and I told it to Sir Lyle, and I said to him we had better not go, but he said that would kill him, poor gentleman, and he looked as sorrowful as ever you saw, just as if he was going to cry. I'm sure I'm glad he did not, poor gentleman, for if he had it's ten to one, but I should have cried too, unless, out of ill luck, I had happened to fall a-laughing, for it's odds which I do sometimes when I'm put in a fidget. However, upon seeing his sister, along with some company of his acquaintance not far off, he said I had better go back, but he promised me if I would meet him again the next Sunday, he would have a post-chaise of purpose for me, because of the pebbles being so hard for my feet, and he'd take me ever so prettily a ride, he said, upon the downs, but he came the next morning to tell me he was forced by a luck to go to London, but he'd soon be back, and he bid me ever so often, not to say one word of what had passed to a living creature, for if his sister should get an inkling of his being in love with me, there would be fine work, he said, but he'd bring me ever so many pretty things, he said, from London. Juliet listened to this history with the deepest indignation against the barbarous libertine, who, with egotism so inhuman, sought to rob, first of innocence, and next, for it would be the inevitable consequence, of all her fair prospects in life, a young creature whose simplicity disabled her from seeing her danger, whose credulity induced her to agree to whatever was proposed, and whose weakness of intellect rendered it as much a dishonour as a cruelty to make her a dupe. Whatever could be suggested to awaken the simple maiden to a sense of her perilous situation was instantly urged, but without any effect. Sir Lyle Sycamore, she answered, had owed that he was in love with her, and it was very hard if she must be ill-natured to him in return, especially as, if she behaved agreeably, nobody could tell but he might mean to make her a lady, where a vision so refulgent, which every speech of Sir Lyle's, couched in ambiguous terms, though adroitly evasive of promise, had been insidiously calculated to present, was sparkling full in sight. How unequal were the efforts of sober truth and reason, to substitute in its place cold, dull, disappointing reality! Juliet soon relinquished the attempt as hopeless. Where ignorance is united with vanity, advice, or reproof, combated in vain. 
She addressed her remonstrances, therefore, to their fellow workwomen, every one of which, it was evident, was a confidant of the dangerous secret. "'How was it,' she demanded, "'that, aware of the ductility of temper of this poor young creature, they had suffered her to form so alarming a connection, unknown either to her friends or to Miss Matson. Pettishly affronted, they answered that they were not a set of fusty duennas, that if Miss Pearson were ever so young, that did not make them old, that she might as well take care of herself, therefore, as they of themselves. Besides, nobody could tell but Sir Lyle Sycamore meant to marry her. And indeed they none of them doubted that such was his design, because he was politeness itself to all of them round, though he was most particular, to be sure, to Miss Pearson. They could not think, therefore, of making such a gentleman their enemy, any more than of standing in the way of Miss Pearson's good fortune, for, to their certain knowledge, there were more grand matches spoilt by meddling and making than by anything else upon earth. Here again, what were the chances of truth and reason against the semblance, at least the pretense of generosity, which thus covered folly and imprudence? Each aspiring damsel, too, had some similar secret or correspondent hope of her own, and found it convenient to reject, as treachery, an appeal against a sister workwoman that might operate as an example for a similar one against herself. Juliet, therefore, could but determine to watch the weak, if not willing victim, while yet under the same roof, and openly, before she quitted it, to reveal the threatening danger to Miss Matson. End of chapter 45 Recording by Roxana Nazari